Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I'm John, your friendly host. For this episode, I'm here with Jamie Barton, who is the Senior Developer Relations Person at GraphBase. How's it going, Jamie? Yeah, going very well. How are you? Good. I'm really glad to have you here. No, thanks for having me. It's an honor. Awesome, man. Well, with all of my guests, I like to start all the way back at the beginning. I love hearing origin stories. How did you first get interested in tech and programming and computer science? That's going back some time. I believe I've got a very clear memory of this because when I was 11 years old, my grandfather had bought me a PC and I was fascinated with it. Just using anything that it could do. And, you know, this was a Windows 95, I think, machine. So it didn't do much. But back then, you know, I had a 56K modem. I convinced my mom at the time to get the internet. I have a broadband provider. It was pre-broadband, sorry. And I fell in love with the web and I was fascinated with the web. And, you know, back then I was using Netscape Navigator and Microsoft Front Page. I kind of just, yeah, fell in love with the web. I was using Netscape at the time and it had this website builder and I used to kind of build stuff in this website builder and then get the output of that and view the source and then learn the source and learn the HTML and how it was doing things and then putting that into front page to kind of make it my own and tweak it, which was interesting. So that's kind of how I got started. And then from there, I moved on to learning Flash and Swish Max at the time. That was kind of a simpler flash and learned action script. And then from there, kind of just, I tried many things out, many different things out on the web. Kind of where I got started really was with flash, with action script, with front page and kind of viewing source of other websites to kind of just figure out this stuff. There wasn't much kind of education and documentation back then. Kind of just had to figure it out. But yeah, I could go on if you want me to, yeah. but that's where it started. Yeah, no, I love that. It's kind of funny. I feel like a lot of the web tools out there have come full circle. Like I used front page quite a bit when I was starting, but now you have like retool yeah. and stuff like that. And it's totally cyclical, right? Like you go from like these <laughs> yeah. very like wig technologies to really complex and then back again. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was great because I had to spend the time to learn this stuff and figure it out. It's amazing today, all of the different resources that everybody has. It's still very difficult to kind of get into the industry, I believe, but it's easier in a way. You know, there's a lot more education but it's a lot more daunting. So the problems are different. But yeah, front page was amazing. I remember walking around school, giving other students and friends of mine CDs and floppy disks with the version of front page on because they hadn't had that or they didn't have it on their machine. And we used to share all these different kind of files and around the school. So I sound old mentioning floppy disks. <laughs> I think I'm, we're probably a similar age. Like I have these really distinct memories of putting Pokemon ROMs on a floppy disk. Me and my friends would play emulators and Game Boy ROMs on a PC, and I pay for my games now. Many similar things that I did with that as well. You're the first person I've talked to that mentioned Swish. I loved Swish. Like, I used it constantly, and I found some of my old websites on archive.org recently, and it's all these, like, crazy flash animations and buttons and stuff. <laughs> Can you describe Swish for people? Because I feel like it was kind of 
a niche technology, but I have such fond memories of it. Yeah, it wasn't as overwhelming as Flash. It still did kind of all of the keyframe animations and kind of output the same SWF file, I think it was. There was Swish and Swish Max. I can't remember like the differences now. I think Max was just all features and action script, but it was just a lot more intuitive. It was easier to use. It didn't kind of, it abstracted a lot of the complexities that Flash had and just kind of made them nice and easy to use with Swish. Even back then, there was a huge community as well. The Swish Max website had their own forum where people used to share stuff. And that was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. What a wild time. So switching gears a little bit, one of the things I noticed when I was looking at your LinkedIn and your history here is that you worked at the Genius Bar for a while. A lot of folks I know kind of like go straight into like corporate tech, you know, they're software engineers sitting in a, at a desk. But what was it like doing retail tech? It was actually one of the greatest times of my life. I still to this day talk about the training that I received at Apple. So kind of just to rewind a little bit, I've always worked like since leaving school, I left school. I used to do kind of, I was always hustling like from the age of 14 onwards when I started to kind of sell my own web hosting. In school, we got kind of a grant to start our own businesses. We did that. And so it's kind of always been in me to kind of hustle, but also share with others as well. So when I was kind of younger and it was around about 17, 18, there was rumors that there was an Apple store opening nearby. And I think it was around 19 that it was actually real. So I applied for the role and got offered an interview, went to interview there. That was several role-play-based interviews and competency questions, which was fun. And I'd never done anything like that, but I got through the process and then went into six to seven weeks training before the store even opened. And I think there was about a hundred of us. And we were all in this room so many weeks together, every day of every hour doing role play and learning about different things, positioning, permission and probe and align, acknowledge, assure. There's all these kind of buzzwords. Anyone listening who has worked at Apple, it's probably changed now. I probably sound really old, but everyone kind of had this credo in their lanyard. And it kind of taught you the company values. And retail, that was a big thing. It was huge. And kind of to go back to what I was saying about when I was younger and hustling and creating these forums and selling stuff and writing tutorials online way back. When I came to Apple, I kind of still had that in me because when you join Apple, you're not employed back then. I wasn't employed to sell anything. I was employed to kind of have conversations with customers, find out what their needs were, and see if what product kind of fit their needs. And it was more than okay if I said, you know what, this Mac, it's not for you. You should probably just go buy a PC or something. You know, that was totally cool. It wasn't commission-based in it at all. And that was really great. So I've always kind of worked and I've always had an interest in code. Before I used to go to work to Apple when the store eventually opened, I would come and sit with my MacBook, of course, and learn a bit more coding, work on side projects, run these hosting companies at lunch and breaks, it was the same. I'd open my laptop, I would sit away, I would forgo any, you know, going out with colleagues at lunch or whatever, just to kind of code some more. And back then it was PHP and whatever, and Ruby on Rails. I was spending all my time kind of absorbing as much as I could about those. And then all of that kind of plays a part into what I learned at Apple. So Apple taught you a lot about you as a person and how you can help others. And I transitioned from kind of a a red zone role, which was kind of the front of house, you sell stuff to the support side in the genius bar. So again, that was another seven to eight weeks training. I just missed out on going to California for that training. So I ended up in the the corporate headquarters in London doing that training. 
And again, it was all about the same thing. It was about how to communicate with the customer, how to just share, how to kind of acknowledge their problems and align with them. Like if someone came in with a bus MacBook or a phone that was damaged, it was up to me to kind of make sure that they left a lot happier than what they came in. And the training was just all about that. And I still find myself today having conversations with my wife or my kids and using some of the techniques that they taught you because they just taught you how to be a better person. And it was phenomenal, the amount of training they put in there. I don't know if they still do it to that detail now. I'd imagine they would for new stores opening, but I don't know how the kind of ongoing training was. And they were a huge employee that gave you the time to kind of do personal development as well. So they would take you out of your daily role to go and learn something new, which was cool. That's wild. You know, it's funny. I feel like having to deal with the end user or like a customer is a really unique experience that a lot of engineers never get. Yeah. Right? Like a lot of people are really abstracted away from that. I mean, certainly it teaches you stuff about yourself, but I feel like it also teaches you to understand and empathize with what other people are trying to accomplish. Yeah, 100%. I think that's why I do what I do today because I think it's from when I, like I said before, was writing tutorials when I was younger and working in Apple with the end user. It's a lot different to just kind of opening up a ticket and going, oh, there's an issue. This is the problem. Let's fix it. Move on. But actually to understand the frustrations that some of the things can cause the user, it totally teaches you a lot more about the product and what you should do and how can you go further to ensure that doesn't happen again. Yeah, absolutely. So your web hosting company, when you say web hosting company, was this like a server in your parents' basement? Like what was the form of this business? So I actually did have my own server at one point. I kind of saved up a bunch of money from Christmas and birthdays to kind of buy my own server. And this was just out of frustration of building Flash websites and not kind of having anywhere to host them. And I was using some hosts back then that were just terrible. So I actually didn't go to market with my own server in the bedroom or whatever, but I saved up all my money. I used to ask for Christmas just for money. And back then I would use kind of my grandfather's PayPal or mom's PayPal or whatever and pay for a dedicated server every month where back then it was called Web Host Manager and cPanel. Yep, WHM cPanel. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. And, uh, I used to split those up and add packages. And then there was tools called client exec, I'm going to say was the name. And you could go in there and add prices for plans. And then I would just create a website to sell hosting. So people would come on and go up 50 meg of data or something. It's $5 a month and uh, you get 10 megabytes of bandwidth or something. You know, it's ridiculous thinking looking back, but people would pay for that to, you know, get their websites online and the customers. At the time, I think I had about 100, 200 customers at the time. And this was just going through all, you know, around all the forums, hanging out, getting involved with the community, seeing what people were building and looking for problems to try and abstract and make simpler. So, oh, I have a Flash website and I want to deploy it. Well, I created some silly uploaders for Swift files and I would inspect the colors and then make it a background and put in the center of the website, which was really difficult back then. And Give them a website, give them a landing page with their flash file embedded. So I did a lot of that. I really enjoyed that. And again, I used to care about the people who were my customers at the time. And this was when I was like 14, 15, right? Like most people don't care when they're like 30. So I just deeply cared about the experience. The web was new. I was really interested in this. I thought even back then, this is what I'm going to do. And everyone thought I was crazy. Did your customers know you were a teenager? Some did, yeah. 
I would say the majority did because we were all hustling yeah. as well. Like there's designers today and there's founders back then. I think one of the most popular was a guy called Sahil. He's the CEO of Gumroad. He was on a forum back in the day. The creators of the Peel case, they were on a forum. There's famous designers now, big companies in these forums that I used to hang out in. They used to do the same. They had their own forum signature avatar businesses. They had their own web hosting companies as well. Some popular ones, which were like the Dig Effect hosting, it was specific to certain problems. You get on the front page of Dig, you go down. So people would spin up these services to try and combat that. So yeah, fun memories. It was so cool. Yeah, it really was. I think we'll get to this a little later, but like the idea of internet communities looked very different back then, right? It's evolved quite a bit. But you mentioned that part of why you ended up in DevRel was that you loved working with like customers. You loved working with people. How did you actually make that transition, right? Because I know a lot of engineers, at least who I speak to, are really intrigued by the idea of these alternate career paths, but they don't really know how to get there. Yeah. So when I left my role at Apple, I joined a company as a web developer full-time. I was there for four or five years and I was working on Ruby on Rails and I was working with a full stack framework and I was learning everything on the job. And this company had millions in revenue and had some huge problems that they needed to solve with IT, basically. So it was my responsibility to kind of create all these different solutions that would help the market, help the company succeed and again, help the customer get the best out of the, the products and the business. And I was doing that for a while. I then did some of my own freelance work. And then I joined another company and did the same thing as a Ruby on Rails developer. It just so happened there was a startup nearby that had just got some funding. It just raised a Series A and they were looking for developer success engineer. And I thought, why not apply? It kind of had a few... Uh, things that you know, right up my street. It ticked all the boxes from support to engineering to just helping others and communicating with others. So I thought, you know what, just give it a try, and I did. I applied. I got the role, and that was a role for developer success engineer. And this is back when no one really knew what that even meant, right? Like I think when I left the company, they still hadn't figured it out, and I think even the industry was just starting to appreciate that this was a role that makes a lot of sense and a lot of companies can benefit from. That is yeah, so API-driven. Dev success back then was, again, more of like customer success, developer success. It was sitting, it was one-to-one. It wasn't one-to-many, like being an advocate of something where you can create guides, tutorials, videos, go and speak at conferences. That preaches to the many. And that's fantastic. But the dev success side back then, for me at least, was about the one-to-one conversations. At Apple, we did a lot of one-to-one customer training. And when I joined this company, this startup, I, I did a lot of that from the ground running. And to me, that's kind of what I defined as dev success back then. We were still figuring it out. Like I say, the industry didn't know what it was. But to me, it was just dev success was making sure the individual customers succeeded, build them with the product because we were trying to sell the product. We were trying to grow the startup. And that was really, really important. I didn't care how many people knew about us. If they couldn't build with us, then the business wasn't going to succeed. So it's somewhere between developer relations, customer success, sales engineering, maybe like sort of in that realm of like technical support. Yeah. I think today it's more known as solutions engineering, the dev success side of it. Developer relations is kind of this umbrella of all of these different things that go on. 
I mentioned the advocacy side before, and that is to me about speaking in public, showing to everyone what your product can do. And so many people do this really good, are really fantastic at it. And then there are others who kind of work in the DevRel, like that could be their title, DevRel, but really I probably find it's Dev Success is their official title under that umbrella. And I do this as my job now, but I spend the time just talking to customers one-on-one and figuring out what their problems are, how can we solve them, and can the product solve it? If it can't, let them know and, and kind of go from there. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, in the world of DevRel, there's still a lot of uncertainty around titles and roles and scopes of responsibility, right? Like yeah. DevRel, Dev Success, Evangelism, Advocacy, like they all sort of like mix and match depending on the company you're at. I'm curious, like a lot of DevRel people perhaps would not consider one-on-one support as part of their job, right? Like, why do you think that's so important, even if you're speaking to crowds of thousands of people? Yeah, I think it's important to know who your end user is. I think it's important just to know who the community is. I think if you do that, people do see that you care. If you're just somebody that's going out on stage talking about how great your stuff is, but don't actually talk to the end user, then people see straight through that. You know, It's just marketing at that point. But I think if you spend the time to get to know your users, and fight for your users. And you know, some would say, like, if you go up, you know, internally and say, we must do this because everybody is saying that this is really crap or or it's not the right way to do something. If you can fight to make those changes internally, then your customers or I say customers, if even if it's a free community user, they feel like somebody cares about what they're doing. And I think that is hugely important. Yeah, I completely agree. I remember back when I was at Twilio, which is many years ago now, I used to just like make myself available to get coffee with different engineers that were using our platform with like no real goal in mind. You know, they could be the yeah. smallest trial user out there. But like some of these people became huge customers down the road because they had that positive association. They knew they had support. They knew we cared about them. And so it was like difficult to track quantitatively, but like clearly had so much value. Yeah, yeah I found this difficult at so the startup that I was at that I joined. We found this really hard to kind of measure internally because a lot of the stuff I was doing at the time, I felt I couldn't measure because I'd made myself open to these conversations and just getting to know the users and getting friendly with users. And even to this day, I have a few people in my message that I just talk to who are old customers. We've got really friendly. They are still using those products, which is amazing. You know, this is, I don't know, eight years ago, and they are still using those products. And I just love that part of the role just getting to know people and sharing as much as I can and then learning even more from them. Yeah. I noticed that when you were talking about developer relations, you kind of like said marketing in a very interesting way, almost as if you were skeptical of marketing to developers, which is a common sentiment, right? Like a lot of people would say that developers don't want to be marketed to. Like, why do you think that is? Like, what's the distinction there between marketing and you know, maybe engaging. Yeah, this is interesting. And it's interesting because I think developers do like some form of marketing, but it is not the traditional sales marketing. If you go to a website that is a developed product and it's giving you a lot of fluff, developers, I think, as speaking from a developer point of view, is you just get turned off by that. It's not something which appeals to you in any way. It doesn't speak to you. You want to know what this thing does without kind of having to go to the dictionary and understand what all these different words mean, because it's just fluff. And I appreciate that what that does to other levels of those making decisions and who that appeals to. 
But if you're claiming to be a developer-focused company and your homepage is saying otherwise, then it's hugely important that you do speak to them in what they want to hear. What are some of the ways that you can make that feel more authentic? Dark mode? Why, yeah. why dark mode? <laughs> I know it's kind of a meme, but... Yeah, I'm just kidding. It probably will. I'm more of a light mode guy. But yeah, I think if you could build good documentation, and this is something which has been... It's always at the forefront of my... It's always at the top of my to-do list. Whenever I join a startup that is developer-focused, I first look at the docs and think, is this showing me how to use this thing in the easiest and best way possible? And if it's not, then I know what my first job is. And then from there, it's about building examples and guides and integrations and getting to know different partners to integrate with and looking at what developers are interested in working with now. There's no point creating a bunch of content or, or wasting your time on stuff that is completely irrelevant. And yeah, I just think it's very important to appeal to these, I say these developers, to developers, us all, in a way that just speaks to them and just being open and honest. But like I say, having good and clear documentation on how to use the thing without kind of having to you know, fill out a form to then get access to something. You know, there's just stuff that doesn't appeal to developers. And I think anyone who is listening and who is kind of getting into developer marketing, it's very different to what traditional marketing is like you know all these lead wall pages and and stuff works but if your product like i said before if your product is not a developer or is a developer focused product and you're not marketing in that way then it's not going to work and i just think you know you've kind of got to go all in on all fronts to to be really appealing and there's there's huge success stories of this yeah so i know a lot of developer marketing people have learned a lot of what you're describing by trial and error right like what are some of the things that you've done that perhaps didn't go well that taught you these core principles? Yeah. One thing that comes to mind is onboarding. So onboarding and tracking the funnel and seeing where people drop off when they start with your product, how far do they get along the journey is something which a lot of kind of developer relations teams try to track and measure, right? And I remember the one startup where we put a a bunch of time into designing this beautiful onboarding process that walked you through using the API. It showed you how to use four or five different endpoints. And you would have something in the browser. It would give you some code to run in your terminal. You would run that. It would then say, okay, connect to GitHub, push this code. And we were automatically detecting all of this stuff at this point. And we'd spent so much time making that experience the best it could be. What we didn't actually do was speak to our users about the onboarding journey. We just went all in on building this thing that we thought users would love. And then we launched it and no one really used it. They just skip, 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 skip. So I think it's important you listen to what people want and build that. Don't just go and build something and think everyone's going to love it because it's often very not the case. Now, what we learned from that was there were ways we could improve the onboarding journey without building this fantastic thing, this full tutorial that was interactive. And at the end, when it wasn't successful, we knew for the next time, okay, we know who we need to ask for this. We know what data points we should capture or change. You know, so there's there's tons of different stuff that we learn from that. But yeah, make sure you build something that people want and don't just go and build something because you think they want it. Easier said than done sometimes. Yeah. What did you end up building instead of that onboarding process? Yeah, what we ended up with was something that was on when you landed in the dashboard, there was kind of contextual cards. So if you'd said you're a developer, when you signed up, it would give you some code examples and a recommended guide. If you'd said you'd used JavaScript, then we would recommend JavaScript resources. 
And if you'd said you'd done, you know, something else, we'd recommend those. And then if you'd said you were in a marketing position or or whatever, a CTO, then we would show different cards on the dashboard for you. And that could be to kind of an arrange a demo, populate your store with some dummy data, things like that. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Cool. So I'm curious, like a lot of your recent roles have been in this sort of like space around GraphQL, right? I have certain preconceptions when I think about GraphQL and how it fits into, you know, sort of a wider developer ecosystem. But like, why have you sort of like focused in on this particular area of tech? Wow, great question. Um, This, yeah, so when I was at my previous role doing Ruby on Rails, I was starting to get familiar with Node.js and JavaScript. And at the time, GraphQL, it just got announced. There was someone had just done a talk about it and announced this thing. And I was really curious about it then. And this had only been out for a few days. And I went over to GitHub and had a look. And there was people on Twitter already talking about it. And I just kind of liked what it had to offer. Back then, it was going to be, it's going to replace REST. It reduced all your network overload. And I was like, oh, wow, it's shouting and promising a lot. So I kind of just took the time to kind of get to know it at a very high level. And I think I recorded a video in one week. I'd learned GraphQL. And then I think I recorded like five videos afterwards, showing someone else how they could learn it. Because that was a way for me to kind of learn, like, you know, embed it in me. Like I was showing somebody else and recording it. And yeah, I just kind of fell in love with it at that point. So what's so special about this? Like, (laughs) why is it different than just like, Hey, I'm using an API or, or something. <laughs> yeah, I think I think back when it first came out, there was all of these such a focus on GraphQL versus REST. Right. And even today, there's still people will still mention that, but I think it's probably less mentioned now. And frankly, it's quite boring. I don't think that is the case. You know, there's room for everybody. And I don't think GraphQL is about that. Like what we found today with GraphQL, where it works really, really well, is in this federation space. So I was working at a headless CMS a few years ago. At the time, they were just kind of touching on bringing in data from other sources. And at that time, other companies were doing the same. We've seen the Guild introduce GraphQL Mesh, which allows you to kind of configure anything. And then at GraphBase, where I'm at now, we are working on the same thing, allowing you to bring data from different sources and give you kind of a development experience you know, on localhost that people can kind of work and build with. And I think that's where GraphQL really shines. Like you can connect all these different data sources and talk in one unified language. You don't need to kind of install different SDKs and adapters and manage different things. It's just one. And then, you know, you've got the added benefit of type safety and you've got all these agnostic client libraries as well. And the documentation and stuff, it's just fantastic. It's really interesting because I feel like it's an easy place for developers to get hung up. You know, like if I want to use 10 different data sources, like maybe it's Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and like all these different like, you know, APIs to pull data. Like that's an incredibly complex process. Like they all use different standards, design principles, everything. And it sounds like there's some standardization, right? That you gain from having this like way of interacting with the world that is well-defined, right? And sort of generalized. Yeah. And I think one of the things with GraphQL that was really interesting was the specification. Like this was something that they created, like whether they created first or not, I don't know, but this is what they came to developers with was the specification to say, this is what GraphQL is. It wasn't kind of how you should build anything. It was just like, this is a technical specification. 
There's yeah. different implementations in different languages, and that's up to you. I don't even think the specification mentions HTTP, so it can work wherever, right? It was just talking very high level what GraphQL meant. And when there's a lot of discussions about will it replace REST or not, even then, a lot of people who, I say a lot of people, I'm just talking about myself and kind of a small group of friends that I was kind of talking with this about, was we noticed that a lot of people don't, or we certainly didn't, use REST as in RESTful. All these endpoints we had weren't RESTful. It, there would be endpoints to add user, update user, remove user. Why not just use the HTTP methods to infer that, right? Coming from the Ruby on Rails background, that was something I just did all of the time. And when I came to GraphQL, I wasn't really too concerned about everything was 200 okay, like everything was good and everything was a post request because the GraphQL specification taught me, okay, this is, you know, this is what things are, how I should lay things out, my mutations, mutate stuff, my queries can fetch the data. And this is how I think with Relay, there's been so many kind of implementations of it to make it, you know, follow some common best practices. And I think once you do follow those with a GraphQL, you can have a really nice experience. And if you use REST correctly, you can have a really, really nice experience there. So yeah, it's awesome. So I noticed you mentioned this earlier that you're involved with this group called the Guild, which yeah. I did a bit of research on. And I found it fascinating, but I'd love to hear you explain it because it's a really unique concept that I have not seen before. Yeah. So when I left the company that I was working at a few years ago, the Guild were very supportive of the content that I was doing around GraphQL. There wasn't too many videos going on at the time. And they kind of came to me with a proposal, which was, hey, we really love the work that you're doing. We want to support you. What can we do? And I was like, okay. And this took me a long time to get in my head. Like they've been asking me for for like years before this. They were like, come and just create content on GraphQL and get paid. I just couldn't understand like what? It was too good to be true. Yeah. And what I really love about the guild, and I, I create content about the guild tools now because they have a huge ecosystem of tools and I just love what they do and support them, but they credit the individual guild members. So if you have a library and you work on that, it's your library or you and the contributors libraries. It's not the guild's ownership, right? So everybody works kind of independently in that regard, but everyone kind of gets together and discusses, okay, these are the things we want to work on. and Everyone mucks in and gets involved, but it's all about the individual and what they bring and creating them a profile, not the company, which was fantastic. So they have this concept of building all of these different tools. Most of them are in GraphQL. They are venturing outside of that, but a lot of companies use these tools, but don't know how to use them correctly. So they then have that kind of business side, which is we'll show you how to use it correctly. We'll even consult for you and be there as kind of a support line if you need it. And they obviously charge for that. And that's where they make their revenue. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. Like it really does come across as a collective of developers, right? And, yeah. you know, they provide similar services to a lot of big companies, right? Like if you look at Red Hat, you know, like a lot of their revenue is like licensing and support and training yeah. and like all of that. But this is like, in many ways, a sort of like decentralized group of people doing that as far as I can tell. I mean, it's a fascinating business model for one, but like, when you create content for them, like how product focused is it, right? Can you just pick and choose, you know, like, yeah. hey, like here's a cool open source library I want to create something about? Like, how do you think about it? Yeah. What shocked me even more was Uri, one of the founder members of the guild, had said, you don't even have to create content about any of the guild tools. And again, that was something else which kind of 
I just didn't understand. Like, I was like, really? But why? And they are really passionate about kind of growing the ecosystem and making sure that people know how to use things correctly and know what tools are available. And it's not just about kind of one company owning the entire ecosystem. They would much rather spend for me to create content, showing everybody, okay, this is the landscape. These are the tools. These are the frameworks. These how we piece everything together. And that's what they do. And it's just fascinating. Everybody has, you know, when you run a business or a consultancy or whatever, it's all about, you know, making money, right? It's all about building your brand, building your awareness. But the guild builds the awareness of individuals, which was just really, really nice. Yeah, that's a really, really cool concept. So now that you've been creating this content for a number of years, right? And it sounds like you've done it both under this interesting, like collective umbrella, as well as more of the corporate developer education side. What are some of the things that you have developed as like your best practices and principles for making great content? Yeah. So I think it's easy to find anyone can come up with content ideas. I think it doesn't matter what it is, like someone can create content about anything. But I think what I really do is I just kind of lurk in the background on Reddit, on Discord, on Slack still. I've got GraphQL on the brain. I was going to say GraphQL there. But yeah, I just kind of lurk in the background and see what people are asking and offer my support where I can help um, or find the person that can and, and then kind of connect them. And from that, I'm able to kind of gather what questions people are asking for and kind of get this macro overview of what's going on across multiple channels and different discords and see where the trends are and then create content about that. So for a lot of my time last year was around something called GraphQL Code Generator, because a lot of people were discovering this for the very first time or wanting to automate some of their you know, projects to have better type safety. We've seen a huge rise in TypeScript usage. So it was very clear to me last year, based on the questions that were coming in about the Code Generator, that more and more people were wanting to migrate to TypeScript and use that to generate types for other things. And they were kind of trying to figure out how to work that with this and whatever. So I just kind of plucked out from all of that, kept a tally of what was going on and create content about that. Like create content that showed you how to do this with that. I don't like to create kind of 10, 15 minute videos or even an hour long video showing someone how to build like a Reddit clone or something because that's great. It's awesome. And a huge respect for anyone that does that. I used to do this. It's such a huge time consuming thing. I much prefer, we've seen this with Egghead back in the day, right? Where they would put these short videos out and you could go in, lock in and just do it. And I've got huge memories and fond memories of other creators who did a similar thing that I used to watch. And I just find that really, really helpful now. Just cutting out kind of all of the waffle and just getting to it. I can waffle on, I'll stop waffling, but that's just uh, how I go about it. How do you know when one of your videos is like successful, right? Because I noticed that you have a lot of videos, like something like a hundred videos, maybe more. And I'm curious, like how you identify what the best ones are, where to double down or things like that. I'm actually really bad at this. Like probably is anybody creating content. You keep a track of the numbers, the comments, the likes, when people drop off watching a video. And I kind of go back and reflect, why could that be if I'm seeing a a decrease in users of viewers at a certain point. I'll go and figure out, did I say something? Was I not clear enough? Was my code too fast? Was I speaking too quickly? And then try and improve that for the next one. And I have a lot of videos spread over different companies and they aren't really in one place that people can find. That's yeah. something this year that I want to improve by kind of create my own website that lists all of my content 
and then be able to figure out in, and double down on that again even further. But with GraphQL WTF, that was, I think there's like 80 videos or so, and you're laughing, right? And that's because- It's a great name. name. Yeah. Everyone always asks, like, well, don't ask, they know, right? What it stands for, but I'll go on to say it, but stop. And it's always kind of a great conversation over there. But yeah, I created a bunch of videos. And like I said, with Discord and notes and trends, that's something which I think uh, I spent a lot of time just kind of trying to master and doubling down when people were asking stuff. Like I created a video, but it was six minutes long. It showed how to do this and this, but I didn't go into this one thing. I'm going to do that next week. You asked before about kind of the guiding principles was I did this. I created... 20 videos. I took two weeks off my role. I created 20 videos, 20 weeks worth of videos just to keep doing, right? I had this backlog and I could publish one every single week and just to kind of save things if it stick, right? So if people are going to find this interesting and fascinating, were they learning anything? And I will do that occasionally, just kind of create a batch of videos on a specific topic and just see if those videos get more views and engagement than just the one off things. And I noticed some of the videos that I do, which is, like, here's how to use GraphQL and this framework. The you tend to do as well because there's hundreds of them, but there's not so many videos on how to do this specific thing with GraphQL and this specific thing in the framework. So when I create those, those are more engaging than just kind of the very high level. Hey, this is how you install this and connect it. I've always been surprised when I've written tutorials that like the more specific your use case is, the more likely it is that actually solves someone's problem. Like people are not very good at taking generalized use cases and applying them to their own situation. Yeah. You know, like yeah. you do have people Googling, like, how do I connect to Twitter API version 1.2 with Rails 6. whatever? Right. Yeah. And like there's like weird esoteric problems with each of that. Yeah, absolutely agree with that. So now that you're sort of like deep in this world, like I imagine you follow other creators in the space. Are there any folks out there that you think are doing a particularly like creative or successful job creating, you know, developer education resources? Yeah, there are far too many to mention them all by name. I think in regards to who I maybe look up to or yeah. maybe it's people who aren't so much in the space right now or as much as they used to be, but way back when I first started, I loved the content that Ryan Bates was creating with Railscast. I could go on there and just learn, like you say, how to do something very specific. It wasn't all this high-level stuff, and I really, really appreciate that. We then seen Joel from Egghead and John and a few of the kind of early-day creators on Egghead create some really, really awesome, engaging content. And I think even in the Redux days, Dan Abramov had created some content on Redux that just went viral. It was so huge. Probably is why Redux was so successful was because the content was just to the point, very, very detailed. And I love binging that stuff. Another one that comes to mind is Jeffrey Way of Laracasts. And I can't remember the name, the name of the company that it was before Laracasts was a thing. But the way that Jeffrey teaches is again very crisp to the point and doesn't waffle on too much, just shares what you need to know. And again, the content is very specific. And Jeffrey was teaching me PHP on I can't remember what the website was called, but it was something paywalled way back when. And the content was fantastic. It was just it was just great. I love these short videos that are coming out or from creators like Jeffrey and, and others. Yeah. So far too many to name. 
Those are great ones. Why video? Yeah, a great question as well. I have about a dozen or so books on stuff. I was learning a bit of Go last year and I was reading the book and I sat there with the book open. I eventually got a PDF and I was trying to just kind of play myself on Go and work. You're following the book and stuff. I wasn't really connecting the dots and I prefer video content. Not everybody does. And for video for me, I can just kind of watch it, then go away and practice it, then come back, watch it again and make sure that like, did they really tell me to do that? Did I understand it that way? And then kind of work like that. Like I say, I'm not somebody that creates or watches videos that are like an hour long, but I'll watch somebody that's teaching me something for five minutes and I'll go away and practice and implement that. I think it's really fun. Yeah. It's also really helpful, I think, to see that what you are doing locally is the same as what this other person is doing. Like, If you're writing a tutorial, it's really difficult to capture every one of those steps. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So I always like to end on a couple of general questions, you know, and I've really enjoyed this. It's been kind of an interesting like conversation, but like when you think back on your own journey and how you got started and, you know, like all of these different twists and turns, are there any like changes that you would like to see in the future to how developers start their own careers and enter the industry? Yeah, I would encourage people to just create content about what they learn, but avoid creating content that is getting started content and just scratching the surface content. Like there are millions and millions of guides on how to install Next.js with database, right? And like I say, like you said, you know, there are people out there who want to learn how to do very specific things. I would encourage people to find out what those are and create content about that because people will find that very successful for themselves. It doesn't help everybody, but it will help a huge amount of people that you don't think it is. So I'd encourage people to go deeper, dive deeper. I completely agree. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much for your time. The question I love to end on with all of my guests is, is there anyone out in the world of tech or science or DevRel that you aspirationally would want to grab a couple hours with and take to lunch? Yeah, I know the name straight away. Chris Trag. He was ex-head of DevAgacy at Stripe. We chat on Marco Polo occasionally, just kind of keep in touch and hang out. But he was somebody that pushed me last year to really focus on what I was enjoying and kind of take that leap to kind of go into full-time content creation and then join another startup. And yeah, just kind of believe in myself when I was a little burnt out. But yeah, I take Chris to breakfast, dinner, lunch, and out for beers afterwards. Yeah, he's a cool guy. He is a very cool guy. I actually used to run into him all the time when he was at Evernote many years ago. Yeah. Small world. Awesome, man. Well, thank you again. If people want to find you, where's the best place to find your content or your online presence? Yeah. So if there is anyone listening who is still on Twitter, I am at Notrab, which is Barton backwards and graphql.wtf. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Jamie. And I hope you all enjoyed. If you like this episode, definitely like and subscribe and follow along for more. And happy hacking, everyone. Thank you. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists.
Happy hacking. Thank <laughs> you.